Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We are in John chapter 12, verse 27 this morning. John chapter 12, verse 27. And let's pray together. Father, we come before you grateful, grateful to be your children, grateful to be able to be in your presence. And Lord, we ask that you would really speak to us once again of the magnitude of the cross, that you would love us enough to send your son, your beloved son, to die for our sins so that we could be in relationship with you. Would you send your spirit to lead us and guide us in truth? In Jesus' name, amen. We've all experienced different magnetic pulls uh, in our lives. Maybe you've been drawn to a particular career, or a particular profession. Maybe you knew at an early age that you wanted to do that and you've put a lot of effort into seeking that out. For some of you, it's a sports team. I always like to ask people, you know, why do you root for this particular uh, sports team? How did you come about to like the Pittsburgh Steelers? Did you grow up in, in Pittsburgh? And a lot of times I'll hear something like, well, I was watching a game as a young child and I just really enjoyed the Pittsburgh Steelers. Or I like their jerseys. A long time ago, I really liked their jerseys, so now I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. But there's that pull to that particular uh, team. All of us that are married experienced that magnetic pull to our spouse, didn't we? I remember when I met Amber, I was like, man, I, I couldn't stop pursuing her, spending time with her, calling her. This dates us, but we had cell phones where you couldn't have a lot of minutes on your cell phones. Uh, young people, you live in a blessed time. You don't even know that time. So it's too expensive to use the cell phones. Uh, so we would get these calling cards and on landlines, as she was in Glenwood Springs going to college, I was here in Colorado Springs, and I would call her on this calling card and we'd talk, 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 and then this voice would come on and say, 10 minutes left on the calling card, and be like, I'm going to recharge this and call you back, right? And still Amber has that ma magnetic pull in my life where I want to pursue her and spend time with her. What we're going to look at today from the Word is the magnetic pull of Christianity. There's a quote by a man named McLaren where he says, the cross is the magnet of Christianity. What draws us to God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way, as he's lifted up, he will draw all men to himself, and he's focusing on the cross in that statement. So join me in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Just prior, Jesus has used the illustration of a seed, that a seed must die in order to produce life, that he's going to die in order to produce life. He expresses his heart here. He says, my soul is troubled. This word troubled, it means to be disturbed or to be stirred. And he expresses that to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would pray and saying, please, if there's any other way possible, let this cup, speaking of the suffering of the cross, pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. And he even requests that if it's possible, that he could not have to go to the cross. This speaks of how brutal the cross is, the physical suffering of the cross, but also the spiritual aspects of the cross, where Jesus knew no sin, never sinned, 
but he became sin for us. He took on our sin. Sometimes we're accosted by sin. Even as sinners, we're blown away that someone could do such a a horrific thing. Imagine God in his holiness taking on sin and receiving the punishment from sin for a moment where the father breaks fellowship with the son. And the son cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's a a consequence of sin. And Jesus is now days away from the crucifixion. And he's saying, if it is possible, save me from this hour. This shows us that it's okay to go to our father when our spirit is disturbed, discouraged, confused. A lot of times we feel like we can't go to God when our heart is troubled. But Jesus shows us the example that he goes to the Father when his soul is troubled. But notice then Jesus focuses on his purpose. He says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He knows that he's come to be the ransom for sin. So he's willing to fulfill this commitment to go to the cross in his love for the Father, in his love for us. And this shows us what the Christian life is all about. The verses just prior to this encourage us to follow the example of Christ, to be willing to die the way that he died, to die to our selfishness. And there's many times where we need to say, not my will, but your will be done. I got to tell you this morning, if you're waiting for the warm fuzzies in regards to obedience, you may be waiting a really long time. We have this idea that our heart is always going to line up with the word and we're going to feel like obeying God. Now, sometimes that happens. Sometimes the stars align and we're like, oh, I just, I want to serve God. I want to do the right thing. But many times we wake up and we say, I don't feel like doing the things that God is asking me to do. I don't feel like loving the people that God has placed in my life. And we choose to say, not my will, but your will be done. We choose to follow in the footsteps of Christ's obedience. In verse 28, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. In this choice of obedience, what motivates Jesus is he wants to bring glory to the Father. He wants people to see the Father in a greater way, that their understanding of the Father would be magnified, and he's willing to go to the cross that the Father will be magnified. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But we realize this is how much the Father loves us, that he would send his only begotten son. So he says, I'm, I'm in. I'm willing to glorify the Father. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. An audible voice from heaven speaks and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father speaks three times audibly in regards to his son Jesus. The first was at the baptism of Christ. In Christ's baptism, he was surrendering to the plan of the Father. Wasn't being baptized to repent of sin. He never sinned. And the Father sees the baptism of the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up, have a conversation with Jesus. Once again, the Father speaks audibly from heaven 
saying, this is my son, hear him. We know from Luke's account that what they were talking about on the Mount of Transfiguration was Christ's death. So the baptism of Christ, surrendering to the plan of the Father. The Mount of Transfiguration, thinking about the crucifixion. Once again here, the crucifixion is the focus and the Father speaks and says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The name of the Father is glorified through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Verse 29, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Not all understood what this audible voice was, trying to explain it away. Some are saying, oh man, that was some tremendous thunder. Others saying, oh, an angel has spoken to Jesus. But I'm sure that there was some who acknowledged that this was the Father speaking in affirmation of the Son. In verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sakes. Christ didn't need to hear this. This was for the benefit of those that were listening and the benefit of us as well who would read generations later to see the Father's love for the Son, to see the Father affirming the Son. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is speaking of the cross. And he says, right now, the cross is going to be the judgment of the world. How so? Because for those that will believe in what Christ has done upon the cross, his death and resurrection, forgiveness comes to us. Judgment has been passed upon Christ and we receive grace. But for those who reject the cross, for those that say, you know what, I don't believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again. I don't believe that he exists. I don't want anything to do with him. They're going to be judged by the cross. They're going to be judged by their unbelief of the cross. So now is the judgment of this world through the cross of Jesus Christ, but also the ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world is Satan. Jesus ascribes that uh, to Satan. How did that take place? How did Satan become the ruler of this world? Through Adam and Eve's sin. When they sinned, then Satan has that place of being the ruler of this world. But Jesus says now is going to be the judgment upon the ruler of this world. Satan saw the cross as a victory for him, but ultimately it led to his defeat. Because Satan is defeated at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do live in a very real spiritual battle. God tells us to submit to him, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But we fight this battle from a position of victory. Satan has already been defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. So this is the power of the cross in our lives. If you believe in what Jesus has done for you, judgment has passed over you. You live in forgiveness. You live in the grace of God and the acceptance of God. And also we live in this spiritual victory to know that Satan does no longer have a hold on our lives. That we can resist him through Christ and the power of God's might and he will flee from us. So verse 32 And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus is talking about the cross. Talking about the way that he would die. His 
crucifixion. When I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Let me ask you a question. If you had 15 minutes to talk with someone who has no idea who Jesus is, what would you talk to them about? What would you choose to share with them? And they're open. They're asking. Would you focus on creation? Would that be what your focus of that 15-minute conversation uh, would you be? Would you focus on politics? I hope not, right? Newsflash that Democratic Party cannot save you from your sins. Newsflash the Republican Party cannot save you from your sins. Newsflash the Tea Party cannot save you from your sins. You fill in the party. They cannot save you from their sins. Hopefully we're not going to focus on politics, right? What we want to focus on in that 15 minutes is them understanding the crucifixion of Christ. Understanding that God loved them specifically enough to send his son to die for their sins. Explain what sin is, to miss the mark. It's when we rebel against God, but also when we're trying to do well, but we fall short. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, know the cross. Know the depth of what it is that Jesus died for your sins. Live in the glory and the grace of of Jesus Christ. And then share that with people. Because as we share Christ lifted up upon the cross, this signifying death, what happens? That's the magnet that draws people to Jesus. That's the kindness of God. That's, that's the love of God that brings them into relationship with Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is cross-generational. The cross of Jesus reaches the heart of a three-year-old, the heart of a five-year-old, the heart of a 15-year-old, the heart of a 55-year-old, the heart of a 75-year-old. We oftentimes wonder, how do we reach people? How do we reach the next generation? It's not necessarily about being hip. Though there is some value of seeing how culture is changing and trying to to use culture to reach people for Jesus Christ. But you know what? Culture has never reached Christ. Reached unbelievers, excuse me. Being hip and cool has never reached people that don't know Christ as their Savior. I don't think young people are wanting us old people to act like young people, right? They're like, dude, you're old. Why are you trying to act young? What they're really desiring is to know the truth and the reality and the depth of who Jesus Christ is and to communicate that through love. So no matter what the generation is, it's the cross of Jesus Christ that is going to draw them. Also, the cross of Jesus Christ is cross-cultural, The cross of Jesus Christ impacts people no matter what culture they're coming from, no matter what country, what background, what experiences that they have gone through. So as we teach the scriptures here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, the main point is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What we're going to focus on is the love of God displayed through Jesus Christ. That is the whole message of God. Paul said, I'm determined to know one thing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because it's the testimony of God. It's God's story. It's his testimony. Paul was speaking that 
to a Greek culture that was highly intellectual. And Paul says, I realize the greatest thing that I can share with these intellects is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. So let's meditate for just a moment on the wonders and the glory of the cross. This is not exhaustive. This just stirs a few thoughts this morning. Is the cross, number one, provides salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ provides salvation. We live in the grace of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which involves forgiveness. Think of a big bucket. Let's call it salvation. What's inside of this big bucket of salvation is forgiveness. That's incredible. All of our past sin, our present sin, our future sin, it's finished, it's paid for. We live in forgiveness. We also live in freedom inside of salvation, that we no longer are slaves to sin, that God has the power to forgive us of sin, but also to lead us out of sin, to change and transform our lives. Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's salvation. Inside of the bucket of salvation is everlasting life. You have everlasting life. You have a reservation in heaven that just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Just keeps sounding so wonderful, the reality of salvation and eternal life. Inside of this bucket of salvation provided through the cross is relationship where we're invited into relationship with the Father. We have sonship and daughtership. We're the children of God, all inside of salvation. The cross provides salvation. But also the cross demonstrates the love of God, number two. It demonstrates the love of God. What drew me to Christ was the fact that Jesus died for me when I wanted nothing to do with him. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up going to church. And I had a really hard heart towards God. It wasn't a decision that was made from lack of knowledge. I knew who Christ was. I knew what he did for me, and I didn't want anything to do with him. And I made that abundantly clear to the Lord and to my parents. When Sunday morning would come, I'm like, really? We got to go to church again? And then on the way home, I just loved to throw this dagger in mom and dad's heart. Say, you know, the dumbest thing that anybody could do with their life is be a pastor, right? That's how much I hated the whole experience. God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he, right? And what caused my heart to change was God speaking in my heart and saying, Eric, while you've wanted nothing to do with me, I've wanted everything to do with you. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that sinful state, in that rebellious state where we didn't want anything to do with God, he wanted everything to do with us. For some reason, it's easy for us to doubt the love of God personally, even as believers. We have no problem believing the love of God for our families, for our friends, even the strangers that we interact in the community, but yet in our own life, we secretly believe that God is mad at us, that he really doesn't like us. And we even come up with phrases like, well, I know God loves me, but he doesn't like me, right? And then when we sin, we feel like God is looking down at us with his arms crossed and his finger like this going, and more we're interpreting that he's wanting to fry our faces off than love us. 
And the Father has clearly demonstrated his love through the cross. By Jesus hanging upon the cross, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. This is so important to Paul as he writes to the church of Ephesus and they're doing well. These are mature believers, growing believers. He prays, he got on his knees and would continually pray for the church of Ephesus that they would know the height and the depth and the width and the love of God that passes knowledge. He says, this group of believers needs to know the love of God in a greater way. So we're never experts on this. We've never got this fully figured out of how much God loves us. And as we focus upon the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that the Lord loves us. I hope that God's love just goes off in your heart as a bomb this morning. And you look at the cross and you go, I am loved by God. The cross reveals the horrific nature of sin. Sin is horrific. Once again, in our community, in Colorado this week, we are grieving over the horrific nature of sin. How people can go in and take innocent lives, go into their school, and the shooting that's taken place in, in Highlands Ranch. And sin is horrific. It's very difficult to build an argument that there's no evil in the world today. There's evil in the world today. And the cross of Jesus Christ shows us how horrific sin is. How so? Because God in his justice could not simply say, well, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. And we tend to undermine how bad sin is in our own lives and in the lives of others. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's such a big deal to a holy God that without Christ dying upon the cross, we can't be in his presence. Without Christ dying upon the cross and us believing in what Christ has done for us, we can't be in relationship with him. Our sin separates us from Christ. Our sin costs Jesus his life upon the cross to be tortured, to be beat, to be crucified. His blood spilled to provide forgiveness. So at the cross, we see that horrific nature of sin, what it took for sin to be paid for. The cross provides comfort to weary souls. See, what I hope you're seeing this morning is the cross of Jesus Christ is not something that you just check the box off and move on. Now, don't misunderstand. Christ is not still on the cross. Amen? He was buried and he rose again. But it's the impact of that sacrifice that's ongoing. And as we go through trauma in our lives, as we go through abuse in our lives and rejection in our lives and confusion and discouragement and depression, where do you go? Where do you go with those things? Who really understands what you're going through? Many can empathize. Many have gone through something similar, but they haven't gone through your exact experience. The one who can truly comfort is the crucified and risen Savior. He knows abuse. He understands that fully. He knows rejection. Isaiah 53 tells us that he's a man of sorrows that is acquainted with grief. There's no sorrow that we're going to go through that's greater than the sorrow of Jesus Christ. And in the sorrow that we're going through, it provides an opportunity to fellowship with Jesus in a greater way and be able to experience comfort to weary souls. I bet there's some this morning that need that. That here you are saying, man, where do I find comfort? 
It's the crucified and risen Savior. It's focusing on what he has done for us. In verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They're confused. They knew the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied of the Messiah reigning forever. And here Jesus is saying that he's going to be lifted up, that he's going to be crucified. How can you be the Messiah if you're going to be crucified? Little did they know that the crucifixion of Christ would not lead to the end of his existence. There would be the resurrection. Also, they're not factoring in the second coming of Christ, where Christ is going to fulfill all of those prophecies of him reigning forever. Christ's response to their question is very interesting. Then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Jesus really doesn't answer their question. (laughs) Don't you love that? Right? Imagine that you're there and you're going, okay, in the law, it says that Christ is going to reign forever, but you say you're going to die. How's all that going to work out? And Jesus says, there's light and there's darkness, and the light is with you for just a little bit longer, and now's your moment to respond to the light. He's speaking of himself, saying, right now, I'm with you. I'm the light of the world, and respond to me while I am here. And then he's like, peace out. See you guys later. And he departs, right? He gets to the heart of the issue. Are you willing for me to come in and invade your darkness? Are you ready to embrace light over darkness? That's really the question. The question's not theological, though they're asking a theological question. It's a heart question. And that's the heart question for us today as well. Maybe you haven't received Christ as your Savior. And you're contemplating surrendering to him, but there's a part of you that says, I want to be my own boss. I want to be in control of my life. I like being able to do whatever I want to do. I like the darkness that I'm, I'm living inside of, and there's that war that is taking place. And Jesus emphasizes to take the opportunity while you have it. Take the opportunity while you have it. You don't know how long you're going to live. And what you choose to do with Christ determines whether you go to, to heaven or hell. And though darkness may seem to have some value to you, man, the light is far better. The love of Jesus Christ displayed through the cross is far better. Verse 37, but although he has done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. He's done all of these signs in front of them, but yet that didn't lead to faith in Christ. I hope if we lived when Jesus lived and we saw Christ feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, saw him raise the dead, saw him cast out demons that we would believe, But the majority didn't believe in Christ because signs don't always lead to faith. Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's by looking at the truth revealed through scripture, the facts that's laid out in scripture that builds faith. A lot of times people are saying, well, if I just had a physical sign, I'd believe. I'd have had people tell me if if this chair 
would move and go to the other side of the room, then I would believe because I've seen something supernatural happen right in front of me. But would it? If God chose to honor that and really lifted up the chair and moved it to the other side of the room. So creation's not enough for you? Like looking up at Pike's Peak and wondering where that came from? That's not enough for you? Christ, knowing historically that he lived and died upon the cross and rose again for your sin, that's not enough for you? And so Jesus is saying, look, I've done all these signs, but yet it didn't result in, in faith. In verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, which beautifully prophesies of the crucifixion of Christ. And there's this question that the prophet is asking is who's going to respond in faith? Who's going to believe our report? Here's been the revelation of God, but who's going to respond to it? In verse 39, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again. This is really important. In verse 37, it says they did not believe. And now in verse 39, it says they could not believe. There comes a point where God will confirm someone's choice of unbelief. And we don't know when that moment is. Only God knows. But we do know that we need to take seriously each time we say no to Jesus Christ. Because each time that we say no to Christ, we're hardening our heart, and at some point, God is going to confirm that decision and say, okay, you have rejected me. Now, there is so much hope and love for you if you're saying this morning, you know, I've rejected Christ for 10 years. I've rejected Christ for 25 years. I've rejected him for 50 years. God is long-suffering, and this morning, if you'll repent and believe, you'll be saved. You'll be saved, because God's gracious. But also, understand, if you choose once again this morning to reject Christ, you're here, God's brought you here. Maybe it's Mother's Day, and you're like, why isn't this guy doing a traditional Mother's Day message? What is this Gospel of John stuff? This tall, skinny guy's really ticking me off, right? And you're like, I'm not interested in Christ. I was just trying to make mom, mom happy. Well, Christ is interested in you, right? He knew you'd be here. He wants you to know that he loves you, that it's not a religion. It's not about joining a church. It's a personal relationship with him. And so once again, examine where you're at with Christ. Now, Isaiah chapter six is quoted here. In verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest... They should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. This is confusing at first reading. It almost makes it sound like God doesn't want them to believe. But as you go back and you read this in Isaiah chapter 6, it becomes a little bit more clear. So let me read this to you. This is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. God is sending Isaiah to a group of people that are spiritually deaf. And his preaching, his ministry, is going to be a confirmation of their spiritual condition. 
And the analogy is that Christ's ministry is like the ministry of Isaiah. God in his love sends his son to the nation of Israel, but they largely reject him. And that's what's expressed in these verses. God in his love sends his son, sends his messenger Isaiah, and it confirms their spiritual condition. Isn't that amazing that God would do that? So if the United States of America continues to reject God, what's God going to do? He's going to continue to send messengers. Because hopefully it'll lead to repentance. But if it doesn't lead to repentance, then it confirms our spiritual condition. Does that make sense? So verse 41, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is really powerful because in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the glory of God. He sees the throne room of God. In verse 1 or verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 6, it says, Isaiah saw the Lord Almighty. This is Yahweh of hosts, Jehovah of, of hosts. Lord is that word that's used for God throughout the Old Testament. And here Isaiah says that he was seeing Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the almighty God, the, the Lord of hosts. So people that say that Jesus isn't God, this is a clear verse that points to Jesus being God. In verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. So there's unbelief, but there's belief. And that's always true. There'll be those who don't believe, but those who choose to believe. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So they're rulers, they have position, but they choose not to publicly confess Christ because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. Now understand the synagogue affected every other part of life. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, you couldn't hang out with family. It's going to affect your business. So this is a big deal for them. But the scripture gets to the heart of the issue and says they wanted the praise of men. They wanted the stature of men instead of the praise of God. What's so tempting about the praise of men? It's difficult for us. We want people to look up to us. We want them to respect us. Come on, let's be honest. If you make a post on social media, what do you do a couple hours later? I want to see if anybody liked it, right? I want to see if anybody hit that silly like button. The creators of social media knew our nature. We wouldn't care near much about it if there was not the likes recorded and if it wasn't put down numerically. Oh, this one had 12 likes. Oh, this one had 26 likes, right? Oh, oh my goodness. This only had one like. There was no likes on this one. They just made a mean comment. Can't believe they did that mean comment. Deleting you right now, right? We want the praise of men. One commentator that I read put it this way Why do we want the praise of men when at the end of the day it's just a bunch of stinky breath, right? Here people are giving us their praise and. It, at the end of the day, it's just hot, hot air. It's hot, hot breath. We want to live for the praise of God, but it's easy to go down this path of living for the praise of men. In verse 44, Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus cried out. There's that point of emphasis here. This is the last public message that's recorded in the Gospel of John. And he says, if you're believing in me, you're believing in the one who sent me. You can't separate the two. 
Verse 45, he who sees me sees him who sent me. What a statement. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the express image of the Father. A lot of times I've noticed that we as believers, we identify with Jesus, but we have a hard time identifying with our Heavenly Father. We have a hard time calling God our Father and seeing him as a loving Father. And maybe that's that we're viewing God through the lens of our earthly father. Your earthly father can never be your heavenly father. Our earthly fathers are flawed, even if you have a wonderful father, but your heavenly father is perfect. And if you appreciate and respect and see the love of God in Jesus, guess what? That's the express image of the father. So Jesus represents the father. Jesus brings us into that relationship with the father. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. He takes us out of darkness. We're not going to be comfortable in darkness as believers. We're not going to make our home in darkness because Christ is inside of us. And if anyone hears my words and doesn't believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last days. Jesus' mission was to bring salvation. If he wanted to bring judgment, he wouldn't have had to come. But he does emphasize that judgment is real and judgment takes place by your own confession. If your confession is one of rejection of Christ, that's what's gonna be your judgment in the last day. We end in verse 49 and 50. But I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Under the authority of the Father. Speaking what the Father had commanded him to. And the command of the Father is everlasting life. The delight of the Father is everlasting life. Church, this morning, I want us to pause and hear the words of Christ as he hung upon the cross. So I really want us to focus on the cross this morning. When Jesus died upon the cross, he said seven simple but very powerful sentences. The agony that each breath was so difficult for him to take. Why seven sayings of Christ upon the cross? Seven is the number of completion. Six days of creation, the seventh day was rest. Christ's crucifixion brings us into rest. So hear these words of Christ as he hung upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This day you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, caring for his mom. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son upon the cross. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to honor the Father to go to the cross, to love us enough to die for our sins. May your sacrifice never get old. May we never get past your love, your unconditional love where you would go to the cross for us. We thank you that we're loved by you. 
that we're forgiven by you. We do ask that we would know the height and the depth and the width of the love of God, the grace of God. You know each and every heart. You know each person here. Those that haven't trusted you for salvation, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.